0: Welcome to Work Matters, a podcast where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. My name is Thomas Bertels. I'm the founder of Purpose Works Consulting and the host of this podcast. My guest today is Paul Knight. Paul coaches executives and others on increasing their personal productivity and reclaiming their peace of mind. And he consults with companies about how to remove systemic barriers to employee productivity. Prior to starting his own coaching practice, Paul led a team of Bristol Myers Squibs dedicated to improving the productivity of the R&D organization. Paul,
1: welcome to the show. It's very good to be here. Thank you, Thomas.
0: So Peter Drucker coined the term knowledge work in the 1950s, and today, an ever-increasing number of workers are thinking for a living. Um, while manufacturing productivity has increased dramatically during the 20th century, we have not really seen a similar increase when it comes to knowledge work. And so in this discussion we wanted to explore what can be done to make knowledge work more productive. You're a productivity expert that has extensive experience in pharmaceutical R&D, which is like a, probably a quintessential knowledge intensive business. What do you see as the biggest obstacles to knowledge work productivity?
1: I think there are two leading candidates and I think surveys have widely confirm this. One is email and the other is meetings, specifically unproductive time spent in meetings. So when it comes to email, there are at least two problems. One is the sheer volume. A lot of knowledge workers find they have to spend hours a day on email. And the other is the frequency with which they have to check it, or at least feel they have to check it. And that second one may be more of an issue in many companies than the actual volume problem. And I think that there are a a few different sources of that frequency of checking email issue. One is just the fact that email provides a dopamine hit for many people. Every time they check it, it's something new. It's always different. Maybe it'll be important. Maybe it'll be interesting. And so it's that little email notification dings and You're right there. And that frequency of checking then leads to an expectation that people will respond quickly. Uh, And then I think there are also people who just want to show how Johnny on the spot they are. And so they make a point of checking email and responding quickly. That differentiates themselves from their colleagues, they feel. But then that puts the pressure on everybody else to do the same thing. So there has been this constant acceleration in the pace of work and a need to check email more and more frequently. One study indicated that the typical knowledge worker checks email on the average of every six minutes, which means that the workday is fragmented into all of these little slices of attention, none of which is long enough to really put your head down and focus and do important work. And then of course, there's the fact that there are leaders who are using email as if it were instant messaging. They send an email, they expect an immediate reply. So I have clients who know that they would be more productive if they turned off new mail notifications, but they can't because their boss expects to hear from them immediately. So every time that thing dings, they have to check their inbox hundreds of times a day. Now, for those people, what I've advised is that they turn off new Mail notifications and then create a filter that will ding only when their boss or their critical stakeholder emails them, which is a nice personal fix, but there is a systemic problem that needs to be addressed. On the meeting side, there is just a, there was a lot of time spent in unproductive meetings. The best meetings are the ones with a lot of discussion, a relatively small number of people who are getting together to hash something out that really needs a meeting of the minds in order to get done. But a lot of meetings are used just for the dissemination of information, their team updates, their manager presentations, and that just isn't a good way to use a meeting. And last but not least, one of the barriers to improving knowledge worker productivity is the resistance of most knowledge workers to thinking of their work in process terms. So if you come up with some way that you can streamline the handoffs between different groups or individuals and it doesn't involve using email, then there are people who start to think, oh, you're impinging on my autonomy to work the way I choose to work. And that becomes a barrier to anybody who's trying to improve the productivity of the knowledge organization.
0: That's a little bit the curse of what Peter Drucker declared in the 50s, right? That knowledge workers need autonomy to be effective. Your point is that that's true in some aspects, but it doesn't extend to the entire work process and how how work gets
1: connected, correct? That's right. I mean, it's absolutely true that knowledge workers need autonomy to do the core creative work that they're doing. You can't give somebody a step-by-step work process That they can follow and thereby come up with a great ad campaign or come up with a new pharmaceutical molecule. But there's a lot around, a lot of work adjacent to that creative work, the coordination of it, the collaboration that goes on, and the operationalization of that work that can be routinized and supported with some kind of workflow capability that doesn't rely on all of this unscheduled ad hoc digital messaging.
0: I've tried to explain that to clients as the difference between doing the work and, and talking about the work and coordinating the work, right? And, and so yes. I think we want people to be able to do deep work and, and dig in and getting the work done and and minimize the chatter about right what comes next and who does what and, and how does it all tie together, So so that seems to be a systemic problem, though. I mean, obviously, individuals can do things. You can switch off the reminder or the notification button. But what what can organizations do to really um, counter this trend?
1: Well, for email, one thing that companies can do is invest in technologies and practices that enable collaboration and coordination of knowledge work without exclusively relying on all of that digital messaging. Another thing they can do is reduce the expectation that people will respond quickly to email messages. We need to ensure that knowledge organizations have different lines of communication that can be used for communications with different levels of urgency. Email should not be used for things that require a prompt reply, but There does need to be a way of getting a hold of somebody promptly and getting a prompt reply. So maybe that's calling them on their cell phone, or maybe it's texting them, or maybe it's instant messaging, unless instant messaging is already overused for non-urgent things. So whatever the solution is, there needs to be a priority channel of communication that isn't email, that allows for a safety valve. For those urgent communications, so the email doesn't need to be checked all the time and people can batch their email. And Cal Newport discusses those and other ideas in his new book, A World Without Email. I'm working with a couple of organizations to implement some of those. Overall, leaders need to understand better and respect how people's brains work. You know, it's not, they don't have a bunch of computers out there that can work. forever and just not ever need rest or recreation and who can switch between different tasks tirelessly. There are limitations to how the brain operates and the way people need to be able to work to be most productive. And those need to be recognized and acknowledged in the way that the organization works. When it comes to meetings, I think there are two problems with meetings. A lot of them are badly managed. And they're often used for the wrong things. So when it comes to badly managed meetings, I think that needs to be dealt with the way you would deal with any culture change. The top person in the organization, whoever it is, has to say, this is the top priority. We're going to fix this, we're going to make this better. The organizational development people come up with what the best practices are for managing and facilitating meetings. They roll out those out. They train people in them. There are things like a clearly stated objective. An agenda, having the right people in the meeting, inclusive facilitation where you don't allow a couple of people to dominate the conversation. it can't be 20 things it needs to be at most five three is probably better one might be perfect but and there should be a, a mechanism for scoring in meetings like you know an anonymous rating form that everybody fills out at the end of every meeting so that that would help with the Uh, bad facilitation and bad management of meetings. When it comes to meetings being used for the wrong thing, the most promising and innovative idea I've heard about is something called flipped meetings. This is based on ideas that are getting traction in education, based on the work of Salman Khan and the Khan Academy. The idea that rather than doing lectures during the classroom time, and then assigning problems to be worked on at home in the evening. You give the kids videos of the lectures to watch at home in the evening. And then they do their problem assignments during the day in the classroom when they have somebody there who can help them when they hit a barrier. So the way that could apply in companies is to recognize that productive meetings have three characteristics. They're small, They're filled with discussion. They focus on complex topics. But a lot of meetings don't meet those criteria. They are team updates. They're big presentations. There's even the manager delegating assignments, getting the team together and say, we've got this project and Sam, I want you to do that. And Mary, I want you to do this. All of those could be videotaped and sent out to the people who need to see them. And then there could be a much shorter follow-up meeting where all the questions are asked and all the discussion happens and all the back and forth gets dealt with. And that would be a much better use of people's time. It would have them in meetings less often, and they would be able to watch these lectures at a time that suited them.
0: That reminds me also of what Amazon is doing, right, where everybody or the person who calls the meeting has to write up, strike the point of view, and the meeting starts with everybody spending 10, 15 minutes in silence actually reading that memos that everybody has the same fact base.
1: Yes. The, the, ideally, you would send out that memo or those meeting materials ahead of time and everybody would read them. But I think the conventional wisdom is you can't trust everybody to read them because everybody's too busy, ironically, because of all the meetings they're in. But if you uh, were to videotape the meetings, these video Recording apps, and of course, everybody has been on video for years. So this is no longer something that requires a big change for people. But I think these video apps actually can tell you who's watched the video. So that would eliminate that issue. And of course, if you were to just send out a PowerPoint deck ahead of time, the PowerPoint deck doesn't tell the whole story. It's designed to have that voiceover. But if you record the voiceover, then people can get everything they need, just as if they were sitting in the room.
0: Just just an aside. One thing that reminds me of is this: the story of Van Halen and their and their contract when they were touring. And, and one one thing that they would do is they would request that um, after the show there was like a bowl of M and M's in the suite, and all the yellow ones had been, were supposed to be removed. Right. And uh, there was you know it was like a lot of discussion, and people eventually asked him, "It's like why did you put that into the contract?" And they said. Well, we see, right? we can see immediately who's read the contract and who hasn't. Was, because that
1: stipulation was buried yeah. way down in the middle of the contract, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was like a very, very intelligent way of, of like making sure that people actually read the document. Right? So shifting gears a little bit, uh, collaboration is key to knowledge work. Uh, few of us can develop a new molecule or protein all by ourselves. Uh, what's the role of culture and leadership to foster effective collaboration?
1: Well, the need that we human beings have to be related to each other is fundamental to our ability to collaborate. Collaboration requires a degree of trust, a degree of what you might call a background of relatedness. Do I feel respected by my colleagues? Do I trust them? Do I feel appreciated? You can't turn that on and off. It has to be built over time. That may be one of the biggest liabilities of the work from home phenomenon. I don't think most companies appreciate the degree to which workers' interactions with each other have become more transactional and less social in the era of virtual meetings and the degree to which that will impede collaboration. So especially with all of these discussions about hybrid work models that are coming online right now, we need to ensure that people have time to become related, remain related, build trust and affinity. And that doesn't happen in strictly transactional communication media like a typical Zoom meeting.
0: So so one of the features of knowledge work is that the most important assets walk out at the end of each day and, and, and hopefully return the next morning, right? Yes. Microsoft recently did a survey that estimates 41% uh, of knowledge workers are thinking about changing jobs as we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and people have been calling that sort of, the great resignation, right, and, and preparing for that. What can leaders of knowledge-intensive businesses do to protect their organizations from the potential disastrous effect that that could have on their business?
1: Well, I think there are three aspects to that. One is classic employee engagement. And a lot of academics and a lot of companies have given that a lot of thought over the last couple of decades. The recognition that when your employees are engaged and feel good about their work and feel good about the company and their colleagues and their manager, they are multiples of times more productive, um, as well as less likely to leave. So that requires that employees experience having sufficient autonomy in the way they do their work and what they do, a sense of purpose about the work that they're doing, opportunities for growth in their job, meaningful growth, and an experience of being connected and related to their coworkers and the enterprise. So there are a variety of things that companies can do to help ensure that. It comes down to good management, largely, and there's a lot of good thinking out there about how to accomplish that. I think the second thing is, that companies really have to address the hyperactive free-for-all that knowledge work has become as a result of the digital technologies and the dysfunctional practices that are used to coordinate the work the way that we've just been talking about. The need to constantly check email or Slack or respond to texts and instant messages prevents employees from doing deep work, and deep work is often the most value-adding work and some companies have a culture that relies so heavily on meetings for collaboration that upper managers and executives are in meetings literally 90 plus percent of their workday there's hardly any time to do heads down work at all so that needs to be addressed and then the final thing is that companies need to provide their employees with a sane work environment you know ultimately we need to get back to 8 hour days And 40 hour weeks and work free weekends and realistic management expectations. I think it's the nature of the modern corporation to exploit its assets. You know, you don't leave a building empty, you don't uh, leave trucks lying around in the garage, and companies consider employees to be among their assets. That means the companies try to extract every bit of value from their employees that they can. That makes for a crazed, frenetic work environment. Many employees just feel they have to get away from it some point, And it doesn't have to be that way. It actually is counterproductive for the companies themselves to operate that way, but they don't often see that. There's something reflexive and automatic about just, we've got to get Maximum productivity out of these employees. You know, I I talked to a senior manager at a company I used to work for about the sense that people were feeling overwhelmed and overloaded and stressed out and overworked. And he said, Well, you know, I look out at the parking lot at seven o'clock at night, I don't see a lot of cars out there. So that was his evidence that no, it's not really that much of a problem. But of course, most of the employees were going home to have dinner with the families and then getting back online after dinner or after the kids were in bed and doing another few hours of work and they were working on weekends. So that was just a completely false metric. And there, But there is a blind spot that senior leaders have about this.
0: I think most organizations look at people, not even as assets, but really as like a cost item, right, an expense. So it's very transactional. Um, right? If the quarter is bad and we got a, we got a, a couple of people, too many on the payroll, let's cut them off and, and make sure that, that we hit the numbers, right? But I think over time, it, I think it really erodes the, the the sense of security and trust that people really need to, to bring their full productivity to bear in the workplace, right? And, and I like the point that you made about uh, really rethinking how work is designed from the perspective of, is it meaningful to people? Do they have autonomy in how they do the work? And do they feel connected to, to their internal customer or to their colleagues? And too often I feel like we design work really, or we design jobs by accident, right? Somebody looks in the drawer and puts out a job description and then says, you know, oh, like, this is a role that i filled at my previous company. Let's copy-paste that into the new context. And rarely do we think about it from the perspective of the individual to, to really do important, meaningful work. Is this job designed uh, to set them up for, for doing that?
1: There are, you know, back in the 1980s, the understanding of what any corporation's primary objectives are, began to shift. And this whole idea of shareholder value as the be all and end all priority for a company emerged. There are companies that subsequently decided that having your eye primarily on shareholder value doesn't actually serve the shareholders, let alone anybody else there's been this push to put the customer first. Now that's not a new idea, but it's often better than shareholder first. However, some companies are beginning to realize that even that isn't the right focus, that the number one focus for them is having the employees happy and making them the first priority. If the employees are happy, they make the customers happy. And if the customers are happy, the shareholders are happy. And so it's a it, it's a change that's happening with some companies. I'm hoping it happens with a lot more.
0: Fascinating. Paul, as always, a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your insights. And uh, to our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about the different ways you might want to think about making work more productive, please check out the other episodes of our podcast series. And obviously, feel free to share your comments and feedback And we're looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much.